0: Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Last Week in Texas podcast. I'm your host Wayne Stacy, and we are here once again with Michael Smith. Uh, you've heard me say it before, if it happened in Texas and he doesn't know about it, it does not matter. So with that in mind, uh, Michael, why don't you take us to the, the Eastern District of Texas?
1: Well, uh, thank you Wayne. Uh, good to be here today. I wanted to lead off with a, what appeared at first blush to be a pretty simple case. Defendants came in, and the uh, case got settled, and they wanted to have their uh, defenses dismissed without prejudice, but it's kind of an unusual situation. You know how sometimes if you're a defendant and it's a customer suit, uh, the manufacturer, the customer will come in and say, hey, we'll be bound by whatever happens to the manufacturer's case. Well, the defendant did that here, and it didn't work out so great. The parties went, They settled the case. They had an MOU, and they had an interesting provision there. They said, we're going to take 50 days to negotiate a final settlement agreement. If we can't do that within 50 days, then the final settlement agreement will become a final and binding settlement agreement. And that provision said that all of the claims in the case would be dismissed with prejudice. So one of the defendants comes in who had kind of given control to the manufacturer to to resolve the claims and said, oh, wait a minute. No, 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 I want my uh, affirmative defenses dismissed without prejudice. And the court said, no, you gave this other party, when you were when you wanted your case stayed under, under the customer suit exception, you said, I'll be bound by any final judgment. So the court said, no, you're stuck with how the settlement agreement got worked out here. Now, it's not clear that there was actually legal prejudice to that defendant. But its I think it's an important reminder to us to be careful what you agree you'll be bound by and check the wording carefully on those MOUs because this could have been fixed at the MOU stage if someone had been paying attention uh, to the exact language, probably at eight o'clock at night when they were trying to get a case settled the night before the pretrial conference.
0: Well, and, and that's this is, I guess, the second week that we've had this kind of post-settlement dispute where we had an agreement, but not quite. And it's, it is a good lesson, but it goes back to one of my favorite provisions, letting the, the mediator have baseball-style arbitration for any disputed provisions. And it cleans things up a lot because you, you and I have been there at 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night before yep. uh, an opening argument. It's a hard time to make sure you got all the little, little issues like this closed up.
1: Well, and the baseball style is a, is a great way to go. There's, there's another one I can suggest. I had a couple of mediations last year with a magistrate judge in the Sherman Division of the Eastern District, uh, Judge Christine uh, Novak. And in her court, she did baseball style. But the other thing she did is as soon as she walked in to start the mediation, she told you, I want you to start writing the settlement agreement. What? she said we can be trading numbers we can do that but while that's happening i want you both to be working on the language of the final settlement agreement so when we get to the end of the day if we reach agreement on the number we've also got a completely finalized settlement agreement so that we don't have to argue over the terms later and that worked out great because Everyone had time to work at on it. You had everyone's attention. The other people were just a couple of rooms away. And by the end of the day, you had a turnkey settlement. Everything was done. That may not work in every case, but that was a really good tactic. I've only seen Judge Novak use that, but uh, it's a great way to uh, get disputes resolved while everybody's in chairs and you can get to everybody and you're not trying to catch people uh, with uh, buyer's remorse uh,
0: by email a week later. So that's, that's a great reminder. There's a mediator out here in California that asks you to bring a blank settlement agreement. In other words, a settlement agreement somebody's used before, take out any of the, the numbers, anything like that as a starting point, because they said, well, you've somebody's already vetted this, it's already been negotiated. Let's just start with that.
1: I think that's a great idea. I think that's a great idea. And we actually had, in a mediation I was in a couple of weeks ago, we did exactly that we we prepared a, a proposed settlement agreement with all the bells and whistles. So we could go in and say, Okay, here's a starting point. So the starting point is, we'll pay you 75 cents to settle this case, or we'll take $2 to settle this case. It's here are the terms and conditions under which we think this can be resolved. Mm-hmm. And even if we can't get the numbers straight, maybe we can get the framework straight. And at least you don't get into those fights where um, 30 days after a settlement, somebody is saying, wait a minute, I never agreed that I would do that. If they had raised that the day of the mediation, I would have said, no, I'm not doing that. Well, Michael,
0: the the next case is one that, I mean, think about how frequently I've seen this in my practice, but uh, Rule 41 dismissals, they don't pop up a lot, and guidance on them is, is rare, and the opportunity to make mistakes is non-trivial. So uh, I think Judge Jordan had one of these that he had to smooth out. Right, and, and this is interesting because Judge Jordan
1: is the other judge in the Sherman Division of the Eastern District, he's in Plano, uh, he's still relatively new to the bench, so we're all interested in what are, what are his attitudes towards different types of motions. Um, In this case, the plaintiff had filed a partial voluntary dismissal of some of its claims under Rule 41A, and the court said, no, you can't do that under that rule. That's not the right tool, so I'm denying that. So then the defendant sees daylight, and they're like, oh, okay, judge, well, now we want a dismissal of all claims with prejudice under 41B. And the judge is like no no that's not here's the standard for that and you're not there they picked the wrong tool for dropping a claim that's not a basis for dismiss dismissing the whole case but it's an important reminder that rule 41 really needs to be read you need to understand what it can be used for what it can't be used for and if you can't do what you want to do under the rule pick up the phone call the other side and say look here's what i want to do i want to drop this How do you want to do this? You want a letter agreement? You want a a new pleading? Uh, There are different ways of doing it, but going in and asking for a dismissal with prejudice because the other side made a mistake in a motion is probably not. um, Whoever did that is probably someone Judge Jordan is going to remember, and that's not the way I would want to be remembered.
0: Goes back to, I think that the, the most important rule coming out of this series so far is don't be a jerk. (laughs) <laughs> uh, good advice. I, Very good. That, advice. This one just squarely falls in that category, and I'm positive somebody was rolling eyes in chamber, if not more.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, don't pigs and hogs. Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. Uh, you want to stay on the pig side of things, um, and I usually do. Uh, th- another case that came out in the last couple of weeks that's of interest is Judge Gilstrap had another motion to stay. Uh, In this case, the Varda case uh, last week, we were talking about one based on a stay due to a a IPR. As soon as that got decided, the next stay-up motion was, well, hey, we want to stay for customer suit exception. Judge Gilstrap denied the motion in this case and pointed out that the allegations were not the same between the manufacturer and the customer defendants. So this is a useful opinion to look at. If you think you've got a customer suit, Uh, argument. Well, have I got the right facts? Well, this is the latest uh, from Judge Gilstrap on here's what the requirements are and you need to meet these requirements or you're not going to get a stay.
0: Well, then we also get this uh, ongoing fight about auto dealers popping up again in the Eastern District for improper venue.
1: Absolutely. Um, this, This is another... There was a case several years ago where Judge Gilstrap held that the the local locally owned BMW dealerships in the district uh, constituted. Well, first of all, before TC Heartland, he said, "Okay, that's that's enough for that's enough for venue." Then TC Heartland comes out; he has to go back and look at it and say, "Okay, are these regular and established places of business of the BMW uh, parent defendants?" And he concluded that they were um now the issue comes back in another case and bmw asks for dismissal again on improper venue grounds and says the local bmw de- dealerships are not their agents the plaintiff's first response is to judge Payne is uh oh, judge this is collateral estoppel this court's already decided that they are and judge Payne says no there have been a couple of federal circuit cases since then that have talked about this issue and have talked about uh, um, agency And principles of agency in determining whether something is a regular and established place of business so i'm not going to hold your collaterally stopped i'll look at the the claims on the merits and the court went through the contract went through the uh the the actual uh control that the bmw parent had over the dealerships and eventually concluded that they did serve as a sufficient basis for venue as a regular and established place of business of the parent companies Uh, So he says you've got a prima facie showing here that they're agents of the defendant for purposes of venue. Very uh, high profile uh, issue. And I would expect to see more cases on this, both at the district court level and at the federal circuit.
0: Well, the point on all of this is it's highly, highly fact specific and briefing matters. In these kinds of cases
1: well and that was the thing i noticed here when this issue was first briefed a few years ago it was not briefed well and a lot of what was in judge gilstrap's opinion was information that that had come up after the briefing that he had to get from sources outside the briefing because the briefing didn't get the facts there. What I noticed here is the court went in painstaking detail through the, um, franchise agreement and said, okay, here's what BMW can, can do. Here's what it can require you to do. I, I, one of my, uh, uh, former partners used to do work for a, uh, auto dealership here in Marshall. So I have a little familiarity with what a auto auto dealership franchise agreement looks like. And, um, this opinion centered on that, on the issues of, are you their agent? Uh, is this really the place of business of BMW North America, as opposed to uh, Michael Smith's BMW dealership of Marshall? Uh, so it's, it's, it's a much better supported opinion. And also, it's got the benefit of the Federal Circuit opinions talking about agency so that the parties and the court could see, oh, here are the facts that are that are relevant to the consideration here.
0: Well, the Northern District and Southern District seemed quiet uh, last week, but the Western District, as you would expect, was pretty active, um, starting with some big summary judgment rulings.
1: Well, it, it was. Um, one of the things we've talked about in recent weeks is case assignment in the Western District. We're seeing. Uh, a number of cases being transferred from Waco to Austin, but now they're being reassigned to the Austin division judges. So we'll see Judge uh, yakel and Judge Pittman getting those cases. Well, this is an opinion from Judge yakel who's who's not unknown to patent litigants because he's he's had a number of patent cases. He accepted a report and recommendation here denying most of the party's summary judgment motions. Uh, Magistrate Judge Susan Hightower uh, did a report recommending denying all of the defendant's motion and all of the plaintiff's motion, except for one part where it said, determined this, that this term is not, uh, this claim is not indefinite, and that, she found, should be granted. So uh, we need to be paying attention to the other judges in the Western District in the coming weeks and months, especially Judge yakel especially Magistrate Judge Hightower, and this gives you uh, an insight into the um, how they're deciding cases there's actually another report and recommendation by judge hightower in one of the plaintiffs cases against a different defendant that's that's up on on review with judge yakel now so we need to be reading those opinions and see what those tell us about how cases are going to be handled uh, when they end up in austin
0: well then we had a a trial out of well it was out of waco and First verdict of this year and surprisingly low damages numbers, or maybe surprisingly a low damages ask.
1: Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of the, the, the uh, verdict was that uh, the, the jury found the claims infringed, that they weren't shown to be inval- uh, invalid and they awarded $486,000 in damages. Well, the thing you want to know is, well, what did the plaintiff ask for? What did the defendant say damages were if there was infringement? And uh, what I learned was the plaintiff had only asked for 640,000. That was their damages model. And the defendant had said, if, we're, if we've are if we infringed, the damages should only be 300,000. So you're just a hair over the midpoint between the two numbers. So what's probably behind this is some pretrial rulings that narrowed what the discoverable, uh, what the uh, damage Damages recovery should be, but as you and I know, if somebody's going to trial seeking six hundred and forty thousand dollars, you already lost. Um, both sides have lost, so it's it's not unusual that the damages are that low. Uh, it, they may not have been that low earlier in the case, but again, that's that's not a, a uh, exactly a rare damages number. Uh, but it does tell us something when what goes to trial. That's all that's left.
0: Well, then. We also get maybe the the first one I've seen, kind of a real set of guidance on serving foreign defendants uh, that you're having difficulty reaching, kind of give us a view on what what's coming out of the Western District.
1: We, we're, we see we're seeing a lot of cases coming out of the western district on this there was a there, there was a one decision by Judge Yackel, uh I think this past week uh, th- this decision was by Judge Albright and he permitted alternative service by email to the party's counsel in a pending case what you see plaintiffs asking for and if they give the court enough facts because I've seen these denied as well if they give the court enough facts and this is a repeat defendant, then you might be able to get, look, Judge, here are their counsel in pending cases. Let us serve their U.S. subsidiary and let us serve their counsel in a pending case. In this situation, unlike other opinions I've seen of Judge Albright, there's no reasoning in here. Which leads me to believe that this may have been even though it doesn't say it, this may have been an agreed order, this may have been negotiated, where the defendant said, Okay, this this manner of service will be fine, we need you to get an order authorizing this, but we're not going to oppose this. Other orders I've seen were clearly opposed. So I think here, it may be that parties agreed, okay, this form of service will do. So if you're representing or if you're dealing with an issue where you're trying to serve a foreign defendant, see what their activities are in the US, see if they're involved in pending litigation, uh, talk to who their lawyers already are, because it may be that you can get this worked out by agreement, as I suspect this might've been.
0: Well, one of my, my favorite cases the the week, um, you know, another slightly unusual case in terms of what what happens day to day, but it was an ex parte preliminary injunction and a design patent case and i think this is this is worth talking about and sharing the strategy here
1: well it, it is this is another situation where you say judge albright granted a preliminary injunction well yes but this is a design patent It's a situation where it's a foreign individual or an entity who doesn't have any presence in the United States. The court said there's not going to be any ability to collect a monetary judgment, so you go pretty much right to injunctive relief, and the court granted a TRO and later a judgment that stopped the sale of unlicensed products that uh, the plaintiff asserted infringed a design patent. So it's a different situation, but it's an error that you want to have in your quiver. If that's the situation you're dealing with, you may not be able to get money damages, but you may be able to get an injunction and at least get the, the product off the market. This is one of several different uh, avenues that you can go to uh, accomplish that.
0: Well, and you know, if you read a, a lot of different articles, people attack design patents as not being very powerful. In this instance, that's as powerful as it gets.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it it, it did what it looked like the plaintiff needed to do. Uh, But again, if I'm thinking about injunctive relief in Judge Albright's court, I'm reading that order and seeing, okay, is this consistent with what he's been saying recently uh, so that I can tell kind of where where's the where's the how far away is the goalpost on this one? How far do I have to go in order to get this? And does it depend on what type of claim I bring here? It clearly did.
0: So, Michael. Judge Albright also had a, a partial summary judgment denial that, you know, in, in a lot of times summary judgment denials aren't that that interesting or useful. But this one was actually on support from a prior application and and really should be a model for what people are thinking about going forward. You want to tell us about this? Well, it
1: absolutely is. And for the reason that you said a little while ago, it's it it the facts matter and what you put in a case and what proof you put in matters. And Of course my favorite thing about this is that the plaintiff's expert's name was michael smith but but i guess the more even more important than that was that judge albright in denying the motion said the plaintiffs presented sufficient expert testimony from the expert to create a fact issue they he he put on testimony of a and b and c and d so he goes down and shows that the claims are sufficiently supported uh, in the earlier patent application. So the defendant's uh, attempt to knock that out was unsuccessful, but you can tell that if you didn't have that proof, you couldn't just come in and say, oh, well, it's a factual dispute. It's a fact issue judge denying the motion. In this case, the judge pointed to the proof that had been put in the record. So again, if I'm looking at responding to a summary judgment, and let me back up. Before a year ago, we had very few summary judgment rulings from Judge Albright, because his docket had not matured to the point that cases were up up at pretrial, and they were getting rulings on dispositive motions. We're now getting dispositive motion rulings out on a weekly basis in cases that are now ripe uh, uh, for summary judgment or trial. So you've got cases like this where before I would tell people, I don't really know how the judge is gonna address summary judgment. Well, now I can send him orders and say, okay, here's a party that avoided summary judgment and here's how they did it.
0: Well, Michael, this case, we don't often see a lot of this priority data analysis come out and it's the way it's written, the way the facts are lined up, it's really really something I think patent prosecutors should take a look at is they're claiming priority and looking at how they would arm the patent litigators with the proper evidence that an expert can rely on really ties together the two practices of litigation and prosecution
1: and and that's exactly the right phrase how do you arm your side to be able to prevail when the when the when the issue gets disputed and especially as you said i mean i'm a litigator i don't know much about prosecution so it, it's, it's important to have someone who does, who can stitch the two together so that I recognize what's important. And so the prosecutor recognizes what I am going to need.
0: Well, Michael, and we also get a really interesting and, and detailed analysis on striking infringement contentions. I know this is a, a pain for everybody, uh, Representative Products, and seems to be across the country in all jurisdictions that require such contentions uh, sometimes a a giant's giant's money pit uh, but a little bit more guidance coming out it seems from from judge Albright well
1: and it's not just a money pit for the parties it's a time suck for the court and for the parties Um, the the pathway on this order uh was kind of convoluted what what happened was they had a dispute where the plaintiff has say one product, and they said, this covers everything else. It's representative of everything else. And the defendant says, no, it's not. They have a hearing with Judge Albright. Judge Albright says, go back, meet and confer again. That wasn't enough. The defendant says, we're at an impasse. We come back, uh, and the court says, "Okay, but it looks like you're going to make some changes. So let's wait. Let's see what happens on that. Okay. then we had to have a motion filed after that. This is one of the few instances I've seen where Judge Albright has said, "Okay, go ahead, file a written motion. On this discovery dispute and then he reviews that here he goes over when a party's infringement contention should be stricken what are the standards for that and then he goes through and makes factual determinations on what whether the plaintiff needs to do more and here he says yes the plaintiff does need to do more they need to provide more notice even if some of these responses are going to be repetitive you need to provide the defendant with with a chart or you need to provide analysis indicating why the information is indeed representative uh, and on also there was an issue of whether the patents are contended to be standard essential so the court kind of reaches a mid-ground and requires the plaintiff to go back and provide more information but it, when i have these fights i'm never exactly sure where the court is going to come out and there are always the variables of, well, how much more work is it for me to do this? Or if I'm the defendant, do I really need more than what they've given me? It's, it's very, very fact intensive and very complicated. And I assume it's, it's at least as frustrating
0: for the court as it is for the parties. The piece that I, I found interesting here is the judge was incredibly tolerant um, going through with this, these multiple hearings, the, the briefing but issued a, a strong, if not frightening, warning uh, at the end talking about uh, no further leave will be given.
1: That That's a very good point. Uh, at the end, he says, okay, you get to amend, but this dispute had dragged on so long that the plaintiff's contentions were about to, to magically transform from preliminary into final once that deadline hit. So he said, okay, you get to amend one more time. If they're deficient, then defendant You file another motion to strike and absent extraordinary circumstances, I'm not going to give leave for you to amend your final infringement contentions. So the plaintiff needs to be aware. I'm kind of at the end of the rope with the court. He's not going to let me amend again. So, I mean, at that point as the plaintiff, I probably want to go back and double check uh, whether I really want to make this argument or would I prefer to sidestep the argument and go ahead and do some more Uh, charts, because what I was taught a number of years ago, Judge Ron Clark uh, explained in an order, he said, if you want to have one chart that covers multiple products, that's fine, but your proof is going to have to be exactly the same. You can't come in and say, okay, this product infringes, and here's the source code that shows that. Now, product number two infringes. Well, Mr. Smith, where's your source code from product number two? Oh, uh, well, it's the same as number one. No, it isn't. It's different source code, and you haven't cited the source code for that product, so your claims against that product are out. Well, ever since he explained that, I think of it in terms of that, am I going to be comfortable simply photocopying my proof and saying it's identical for every other product? If it's not, then I'm going to be a little nervous about relying on that claim chart. I don't know that every judge is going to see it the same way, but when the judge warns he's not going to let you amend again, do you really want to risk your damages base, uh, fighting for a matter of principle on whether you ought to have one chart or six.
0: Well, and you know, shortcuts come at a cost, and, and some plaintiffs will be willing to, to risk that cost because they need a little extra time, more discovery, things that come in, and I think we'll continue to see this, but it appears that Judge Albright understands the game and, and is tolerant to a point he he
1: understands the game and he is certainly tolerant but what i read from these facts is that what you may be seeing is not so much tolerance as the court has a hard time figuring out where the where the where to draw the line and if there's that much difficulty in figuring out where to draw the line that tells me as a litigant that there's a lot of uncertainty and i want to make sure that i i don't have something irreplaceable at risk if it's that i mean if I'm not sure where the court's going to come down, then I want to make sure that I've got a position that will cover the the likely areas that he might come down.
0: Well, the the final case of, of significant interest coming out of the the Western District was uh, an Iqbal Twombly motion, which I rarely put of interest in Iqbal Twombly together in the same sentence. Uh, <laughs> but again, it's, it's becoming more and more common. To see these, you know, I thought they were were dead for a decade, but they're back and the judge doesn't seem amused. Well, they're
1: back, and we've seen Judge uh, Albright grant a number of uh, 12B6 motions in recent weeks, including granting 12B6 motions on uh, 101 issues. So we know that the court is now looking closely at 12B6 motions, and there are situations where you might look at a 101. And that's what makes this order uh, interesting in the Khajiit case is two things. First of all, the defendant says uh, ball, you didn't plead, it's not plausible, so strike it. And the judge says, no, they, the plaintiff only needs to plead factual content that allows the court to draw the reasonable inference that the defendant is liable for the misconduct alleged. Now that's not a low bar because a couple of weeks ago, I saw Judge Albright grant these in a couple of cases saying, I've looked at what you alleged and it's not plausible. Your infringement is not plausible from the complaint here. In this case, he said he did, they did. Now he he goes on to the second argument, uh, which is uh, there's evidence here that contradicts what you're saying and therefore there's no infringement. And he says, well, that's really, kind of more of a summary judgment argument, um, but I'm not buying that as far as a ground for dismissal. Now, for those of us that deal with 101 issues, the second part of the opinion is helpful here because the judge says, okay, I understand you're arguing 101. This is really a summary judgment argument that fits later in the case, uh, and I can't really effectively decide a 101 motion early. Well, we know that Judge Albright doesn't like to look at at 101 issues early in most cases. But he explains in this order why it is that he doesn't like looking at them. He says, I need to have claim construction. I need to know more about uh, the subject matter of the patent. And early on, I don't really have a full record. So whether you're trying to get get Judge Albright to grant a 12B6 on 101, or whether you're trying to argue to him that it's premature and it should be denied uh, without prejudice. This is a good opinion uh, in the Kajit case to look at, to know what do I need to have in there for whichever way it is that I want to argue the court should go.
0: Well, Michael, once again, thank you for walking us through um, another eventful week.
1: <laughs> They're all eventful down here, just not so much in football
0: anymore, sadly. Uh- I guess it wouldn't be the right time to remind you where I live. But anyway, I'll be watching a football game of great interest this weekend.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You will. I probably won't be. I'm done for the year. I'm going to go home and mope. So good luck. Take care. Take care.